All right, time for the message this morning. And this morning we are looking at a new topic. Uh, and most of you would know this uh, phrase, the transfiguration of Christ. And we're going to be looking at this for the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm going to get you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. And we'll read from verses 1 to 13 this morning. And we'll, as I said, we'll uh, look at this over the next few weeks and see what God has for us. So Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Let's read there together. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and, and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man, save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise, he shall also, the Son of Man, suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now and we'll commit this time to him and see what he has for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you once again that we have the freedom to read your word and to be able to learn from it. We do thank you for it. We do thank you that we can trust every word within it and that you have preserved it for us for all these years, Lord, that we might understand you, understand ourselves and what you would have of us. We do thank you for this time. And we just pray that you would bless us with your presence, that your Holy Spirit would teach us your truths. And we do pray that our hearts and our minds would be ready to accept that truth, that we would be willing to live it in our lives. Indeed, as our brother um, Alan uh, has uh, shared with us already, that, uh, that, you, that we would uh, be filled with the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives as well. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. We have over the last few weeks uh, spoken about or examined a question that Micah posed, uh, or that was posed in the book of Micah, um, about what the Lord requires from his people. And the answer to that question, as we saw over those few weeks, was to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. The most perfect example we have of this, obviously, is Jesus, who did those things perfectly right his entire life. In fact, the record of his life, as we read them uh, about it in the actual Gospels, shows that he was always perfectly just, that he always showed wonderful mercy. And that he was humble beyond what we would even comprehend uh, for our own lives or that we would even comprehend in terms of its, uh, its humility. Um, what makes the humility of Jesus so astounding is this. If God asks us to be humble, there's plenty of good reasons for us to be humble. I mean, we're not perfect at all. We, we sin. We have sin natures. We're fragile. We're very, very weak. Um, it doesn't take much for us to, to, to fall apart, to get sick. It doesn't take much for us to die, uh, as we've seen this, uh, this uh, particular uh, pandemic at the moment. Um, it's, it should be really easy to convince us to be humble because we're very finite and we're very, very imperfect. Um, and it should be easy to convince us to be humble, but not normally because people are funnily enough, very proud of themselves. And pride is a problem, which we've examined uh, over the last few weeks. But what about the Son of God? Let's compare ourselves to Him for a moment. Uh, what about being humble when you're the Son of God? I remember an old uh, funny uh, song 
that, that, went, that went a bit like this. It said, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Now that song is a bit of a, a, a funny one because obviously someone's looking at himself in the mirror and saying, I'm perfect, uh, but how can, you know, it's hard to be humble when I'm so perfect. Um, and it's a, it's, a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of a joke. But what about when you are perfect? What about if, if you are perfect in your nature, that when you are immortal, when you are all-knowing and powerful, when you're so high above everyone and everything else that, that exists in the universe and beyond, that there is no comparison to you, how hard would it to be humble? That's the interesting situation we have with the Son of God who came to this world from heaven. You see, the Bible says that he existed through all of eternity with his heavenly Father, that he was glorified by the angels, by all the angels, um, and they would worship him. He sat on the throne. And when we just sang a hymn now, which said, crown him with many crowns. Well, he was already crowned with many crowns. He was already glorified um, as he sat on a throne in heaven. Yet he came to earth as a man, born in a humble stable for our sakes. Yeah, when Jesus walked on water, when he healed the sick, when he raised the dead, when he calmed the storms, when he preached with great authority, when he confounded the scholars of his day, when he fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, when he cured lepers with a single touch, when he made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, he was demonstrating who he was. He was demonstrating that he was something different to us and that with the message that he came with, which was the gospel, that we should have taken him seriously. Jesus was demonstrating who he was and the power that he had. I mean, the, when the disciples saw him walking on water, when the disciples saw him uh, and they were in the, uh, the boat, ready to be, it was being tossed around by the, the waves of the sea and the wind, the Bible says that he commanded the waves to be still. And the question they had was, what type of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, that's the important question that we're going to be looking at uh, over the next few weeks. What type of man is this? That even the, the winds, the sea, the earth obeys him. Well, he's not just a man. There was a small group of people um, who were the closest to Jesus. And the three, we, we know them as Peter, James and John. And to those three... He chose not just to, to reveal his nature through miracles and the like, but he showed them what was inside him that was cloaked by his humanity. One of the most important doctrines about Christ is his nature. Who is he exactly? There are some who teach that Jesus was just a man. There are some that might teach that he was a man who used to be an angel. But the Bible tells us something very, very different. The Bible tells us that this man we know as Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Son of God who existed in eternity. I mean, we know about his birth. We know about he was fully human because he suffered, he got tired. He thirsted, he got hungry, he got weary, he experienced joy, grief, sorrow, frustrations, the, the limitations of a human body as well. Um, but the other side of Jesus, the divine side, the identity that existed before he was born in Bethlehem is the one that we'll be examining in the coming weeks. The one the Bible calls the Word of God. The Apostle John, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1, verse 14 with me. The Apostle John, who was present at this particular time on the top of this mountain, as we've just read, puts it in this particular way. This is in John 1, 14. 
It says, and the word, which was Jesus, before he became, and before he was born in Bethlehem, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And notice the next, uh, the next phrase. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this may indicate that John was referring to the glory that he saw in Jesus when he went on top of that mountain. Because John was one of those three that experienced this particular time. John, James and Peter were privileged to be brought to a place by the Lord apart from the rest of the world, somewhere high above it, where Jesus revealed the other side of himself. So it begins this passage by saying that after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. You know something? Not everyone gets to see this side of Jesus. There are a lot of people in this world who believe that Jesus existed. They believe he was a good teacher. They believe that he was a, uh, a good person. They believe that he may have even done miracles. They, they may have believed that he, that he you know, died on a cross for the sins of the world. But there are only few who get to experience him and see him for what he really is. People, may, people in this world may say a lot of things with their mouth, but their lives tell a bit of a different story. This morning, my prayer is that we have truly come to know Jesus for who he is. And if we understand Jesus for who he truly is, then our lives should demonstrate that. They should proclaim that truth that we have come to know and experience this risen Savior, who we call the Son of God. The question, though, is... There are only few who go on top of this mountain. And what does it mean to go on top of a mountain and spend time up there and for Jesus to reveal himself? Well, my prayer is that we'll understand what that means as well. Not only in this sermon, but in the coming sermons. Because my prayer is that your desire over these few sermons to know Jesus... You desire to spend time with Jesus. You desire to have Jesus reveal himself for who he truly is to you would grow as a result. And that you would truly see him as the one who sits at the right hand of the Father and is glorified because of who he is and for what he's done. So let's look at the background of this situation. So um, Jesus has asked these three disciples of his to come up aside. He's taken them away from the rest of the disciples to come up on top of a mountain and there he would reveal himself as the Son of God. Um, why now? Why this particular time did this particular thing occur? I mean, Jesus has a reason for everything. God doesn't do things willy-nilly. And one of the reasons I want to, one of the things I want to find out is why this particular time, first of all, did um, Jesus ask them uh, to do this, and why did he reveal himself? Why did these things take place to these three closest disciples? So Jesus, um, to Matthew, recalls that after Jesus was baptized, he went into a desert, and and there in the desert he spent forty days there, and he was tempted by the devil. For those days. And when he returned, the Bible says that he discovered that John had been put in prison. And if you remember, uh, Jesus was baptized by John, and John proclaimed that this was the Lamb of God whom God had sent into the world. Jesus then, uh, the, the, you remember the actual Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus. God the Father said, This is my beloved Son. And, and off he went. And the first thing he went was into the desert. He went into the wilderness, the Bible says, and he came back and he finds that John had been put in prison. And in Matthew chapter 4, so if you turn back with me just there for a moment, you'll notice it says there, John chapter 4, verse 17. John chapter 4, verse 17, it says, 
From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I want you to notice, from that time. So before that, Jesus didn't preach that. It was only from that particular time, Jesus began to preach, Repent, which means change your mind. Focus now on what's important. Put, put behind you the things that you believed, the things that you were doing before, and focus on this direction now. And that is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is at your doorstep. Get ready for it. The preaching of the kingdom was presented to Israel in a way that gave them a choice to receive Jesus as their king. Jesus is called the son of David because he was a descendant of King David on both sides of his, of his, uh, of, of his family. Okay? Now, Jesus wasn't obviously born of uh, Joseph, but even Joseph was, descended of, uh, was a descendant of King David, and so was Mary. Jesus was in the, in the lineage of King David, as God had promised that he would um, provide David. He made a promise to, to King David that there would always be someone to sit on the throne, on his throne. And Jesus was fulfilling that. So Jesus was coming to Israel and presenting to them the kingdom of heaven. And he was the king. Okay. So if they would receive him, he would be their king. And would fulfill the promises of God that God had made to send them a saviour and a king to lead them. But we see with each passing chapter in the Bible, with each passing chapter in, in Matthew and the other Gospels, that the religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers, the ones who should have known, the ones who, who knew the Bible, the ones who had the Bible, the ones who saw all the prophecies in the Bible and probably had memorized many of those Bibles, an increasing hostility towards Jesus. They wanted less and less of him. Instead of receiving him and recognizing and asking, where were you born? I was born in Bethlehem. Oh, the prophecy says he would be born in Bethlehem. Instead of asking him all the questions and ticking those off, instead of finding out what his lineage was, instead of understanding the prophecies about him and ticking those off and saying, hang on, I said, this person might be the one. And what, what is he doing? Is he doing miracles? Yes, he is. He's healing the sick. He's opening the eyes of the blind. This might be the one. Instead, they became more and more hostile towards Jesus, so much so, even for us reading, it was evident that they had rejected him as their king. So the ones that should have known rejected him, leaving the poorer people ignorant of that truth. By chapter 14 of Matthew the Bible says that John the Baptist had been killed. So Jesus not only came back to see him um, in, put in prison, but by that stage he had been beheaded by Herod. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were becoming more and more arrogant with their assertions against him and with their um, demands of him. There, there's a particular passage that says that they demanded a sign from him even though he had performed many miracles, even though he had, he had taught so eloquently, even though he, was already, he had already proven who he was, still they demanded more and more from him. And Jesus warns his disciples about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, about their cunningness, about their, their, um, uh, their evil, about their hypocrisy. And... He asks a specific question where Peter makes a profession. And he asks him, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this unbelievable profession. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's no, it's no coincidence that Jesus asked this question or this important question at this particular time. He says, who do men say that I am? 
to his disciples. You see, disciples, his disciples weren't just sitting there huddled in a in a in a in a just small group every time that he went around. They would mingle with the people. They were asked to 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 share food with the people. They would talk to people. They'd be getting feedback about what the public was actually understanding about Jesus. And the response Jesus got from his disciples is also very interesting. He asked this question at this particular time. And the response he got back from his, his disciples about what people were saying about Jesus confirmed that the people were still blind about who he was. And with the population still blinded about who he was, and with the violent intentions of the leaders who had no intention of releasing these people from their control, Jesus changes tact. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some say Elias. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. Do you remember he was originally called Simon? Jesus called him Peter. And Bar-Jonah means that he's, he was the son of Jonah. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Such a bold and correct statement from Peter only served to highlight a, a sad fact. That even though Jesus had done miracles, even though he had done already so many things to prove who he was, that the people remained in spiritual darkness, not recognizing him as the one whom God had promised. To say that Jesus was John the Baptist, to say that he was Elijah, to say that he was Jeremiah or some other prophet revealed that they were ignorant of who he was. And on top of that, the leaders who should have recognized him hated him because he revealed their hypocrisies and their false teachings. They saw Jesus as a threat to their power over the people. So they not only kept the people in ignorance, but they themselves didn't want to give up the power that they had. And Jesus became more and more of a threat to them. But for a small group of people who had put their faith in him, they recognized who he really was. And this was revealed to them by God the Father. You see, God the Father reveals his truth to people. The question is whether people will receive it or whether they have other intentions within them. What I want you to take note of is that there's a shift now in the approach that Jesus takes that's revealed in the following verses. Look at verse 20 of Matthew 16. Look at the response that he says to his disciples. So he's asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now look at verse 20. In Matthew 16, he says, Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. I want you to tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. And look at verse 21. From that time forth. Do you remember what, what Jesus, when he started preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand? He started preaching when he came back from the, uh, from the wilderness. And it says now, from this time Fourth, Jesus uh, began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again in the third day. Jesus wasn't talking about being crucified, being, being um, uh, betrayed, 
being handed over to the chief priests and scribes before this to his disciples. It's from this time forth he began to tell his disciples, let me tell you what's going to happen. They're going to betray me. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the ones who wanted to kill him, and I will be killed. But I'll rise again on the third day. But I want you to pay particular attention to from that time forth. He wasn't teaching this before to his disciples. Why? Because he was presenting himself as the king of Israel, the one whom God had promised. And because he'd given Israel sufficient time to recognize him as their king. When they failed to do that, he began to tell his own closest ones, get ready, because they're going to kill me. Mark says the, the Apostle Mark says the same thing, or Mark says the same thing in his writings. He says uh, in Mark 8.31, and he began to teach them, he began, as Mark says, to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Mark says the same thing. What's also revealing and shows us that what Jesus was telling them must have come to a shock to them was Peter's response. You see, we've read this passage uh, probably many times before. But for Peter to, to respond in this particular way in Matthew 16, 22, and we'll have a look at that in a moment, um, this was a, a shock to Peter. This was the first time he'd heard it. And the Bible says that he actually rebukes Jesus. He tells him off for even thinking such a thing. What are you talking about? You're the king. You're the, you're the coming Messiah. You're the promise of God. What are you talking about? They're going to kill you. How can this possibly be? We've been following you now for a while. Look at 16, Matthew 16, 22. It says, Then Peter took him. He took him. I must have, I wonder where he just grabbed Jesus. And he says, He began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. And Jesus' response is very telling in this particular passage. He says, But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offence unto me, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. You see, it was hard. This was a hard pill for them to swallow. They had thoughts of glory when they followed Jesus. They... They imagined themselves as they followed him. Yes, it was uh, probably hard going, you know what I mean, uh, following Jesus. But in their minds, they thought, he's going to be the king. He's going to be sitting on a throne. He's going to, he's going to uh, fight against the Romans. We're going to be in a position of power with him. We're going to be ruling with him soon. And instead, Jesus goes and tells them, let me tell you what's going to happen. Now, the question is, didn't God already know that Jesus would suffer and die? Of course he did. Of course. God knew already. The Bible says that Jesus is the, is the, the, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew exactly what was going to happen. It's not as if this, this took Jesus or, or God the Father or the Holy Spirit by surprise. Of course he knew. But as with many things that Jesus did during his life, he says that he had to fulfill every righteousness. He had to fulfill every righteousness. He had to present himself as their promised king, the son of David, the Messiah. And he had to give them sufficient chance to respond. You know, if he had not done this, if he had not actually given them a chance to respond, then they may have accused him. He could have simply come and said, all right, I'm the son of man, I'm going to, I'm going to die or whatever else. No, no. He had to present himself first as the king. When they rejected him as king and they wanted to do him in, then two things were accomplished. And God knew exactly what he was doing. Two things were accomplished. One, he's proclaiming himself to be their king, the son of God. They've got to do him in. They have to try and get rid of him now. And so they put the plan, they were starting to put the plans in place for that. 
But at the same time, he had to give them the opportunity to reject him. Because if he hadn't done that, then they would have, they would have rightly said, oh, you, know, you didn't even tell us that you were the king. You didn't come and tell, proclaim to us that you were the, the coming Messiah. But he said he did both. So now, what does the Lord do? Well, he begins to prepare his disciples about what's coming up. You know, guys, it's, you know, he's got these, this group of, uh, of people behind him and they're, and they're following him and he's got his 12 closest disciples and he's got more. He had hundreds. And he's, and he's saying to them, listen, I understand you've left everything for me. And I know that, that you, you believe that I am the Messiah and the Christ. I am. I'm the King of Israel. But I want you to understand that I have to first die. And that life isn't going to be very easy for, none, for, any, for any of you. So the Lord begins to prepare them for this, these coming days. See, it would have been, think about it, logically, would Jesus, would Jesus have, um, uh, if he had not prepared them for this, then they would have struggled with this idea. Oh, you're selling us something, but it's actually something else. They may have actually criticized him for not telling them the truth. But in fact, Jesus told them the full truth. He told them everything that was going, to, was going to come up. He knew exactly what was happening and he shared it with them. Why? Because he loved them and he told them the truth. He wanted them to know what was happening. We see that this time was needed. Because even with the time that they were told about, and there were several, they struggled with the idea about Jesus dying. They struggled with it. You see, we see recorded a number of times in Scripture that Jesus repeats over and over, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the, 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 the leaders and he's going, to be, he's going to suffer and he's going to be crucified. And they struggled with it. They just It's almost like they didn't want to accept it. Even to the point where he's on his way to Jerusalem and you have a situation where uh, John and James's mother gets involved and says, you know, we know when you're sitting on your throne, can, can they sit one on your left hand, one on your right hand? And Jesus rebukes them. He's going off to his death. He's, he's, heading, he's heading to his death in Jerusalem. And... They were arguing about who was going to be sitting on his left and right hand, which means they still hadn't comprehended. They couldn't quite either grasp it or they didn't want to believe it. They were probably still hoping against hope that he, he might have been wrong. Instead, Jesus began to teach them from that point that instead of having thoughts of glory and power, that they would have to now take up a cross and follow him instead. That's a that's a quite a diametric difference to being a servant of a king and ruling with him, and now taking up a cross, which was a, which was an, a, a sign of execution by the the nation by Rome that was oppressing Israel. You see, many of the um, Many people in Israel were hoping for a king. <clears throat> but the type of king they wanted was the one that would actually come on horseback and he would, and he would um, uh, fight against the Romans because the Romans had occupied um, uh, Israel and they were in, under subjection to them. And so there were many people who were looking for a king to fight against the Romans, to, to defeat them. He said, Jesus tells them, it's going to be different. Well, how is it going to be different? Lord, if you're the king of Israel, tell us how it's going to be different. Well, you know what? You know that, that system that the Romans use to, um, to execute criminals? The ones that you, know, you guys see occasionally on the side of the road where they, they take um, people who are criminals who, who maybe have shown resistance to, the, to their, um, their government or maybe have broken a law. You know the one where they hang them up on the side of the roads? And they make them carry that cross to their own place of execution. You know that one? Well, that's the one that I'm asking you that we're going to be subjected to. What? You mean that 
the Romans are going to kill us the same way that they're killing criminals? We're going to be subjected to that? Yes, you are. And what I'm asking you to do now, from now on, is to focus on that. Because it's only the ones who are going, who are going to be willing to take up that cross and continue to follow me are the ones who are going to be uh, my disciples. And it's the ones who put me before their own life are going to be the ones who continue on this path. Following Jesus from now on meant death and suffering. And true faith would now be revealed by those people who chose to continue following him, regardless of the, the suffering, the death, the humiliation, those who would seek to put him first and be willing to die. So Matthew 16, chapter 24 says, then, send Jesus, uh, then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Carrying that cross meant public humiliation. I mean, there aren't... Now, we worry sometimes about the freedoms that we have in this country and how they're slowly being eroded because people prefer security over freedom. And I understand there's a balance, a bit of a balance there. And there's a, there's a, uh, a fear among many Christians that slowly our, our freedom to be able to express our own faith, our freedom to be able to worship, is getting less and less over time. But imagine being in a culture where simply saying that you're a Christian meant that you were publicly humiliated, shamed and put to death. Well, that's what it was like. It meant suffering. Jesus was not promising his disciples, are you going to walk with me? He's not promising glory. He's promising death. And this was something difficult to swallow. And this was something every apostle, every disciple of Jesus indeed experienced in their life, including John, who was exiled to a prison island and there he wrote the book of Revelation. Now think of the adjustment you and I would have to make if you were in the same situation. Imagine the adjustment in your heart and in your mind. What would you have done in this situation? You'd left, you started following Jesus, you believing that he was the, 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 the coming king and you probably had in your mind that he would, you know, he would conquer everyone and, and everything would be fantastic and, and you'd, be, uh, you'd have a fantastic position with him and then all of a sudden Jesus says, no, it's not going to be like that. When you follow me, you're going to die. What would you have done? Would you have continued to follow Jesus? Or would you have abandoned him? The choice really shows whether you believed in him or not. Now, people in life, and this is true of most people, tend to follow or devote their time or, and, and attention to something as long as it suits them. As long as it suits them. When it doesn't suit them anymore, they change. And this is what we see with the disciples and a number of disciples that Jesus um, had um, when things started to go a different direction. If you turn to John chapter 6, verse 53, it says there, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What are you talking about? Jesus? You're the king. What are you talking about? What, what am I going to eat your flesh and drink your blood? And if I don't eat your flesh, I'm not going to have life? And many, it says that many uh, struggled with that thing. It was a difficult thing to understand. Obviously, they didn't understand it in the, in the right context. Obviously, Jesus didn't want them to chop him up and, and, and have a steak uh, of him. They, they misunderstood him completely. 
At one point, they're convinced that he is the, he's the Christ, the Messiah. And the next, the Bible says, when he started teaching this way, that he was going to die, because that was a picture of him dying, that, he, that they're going to have to accept the fact that he was going to give up his flesh and his blood for the world. Um, it says they left him. In John 6, 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So what happened to their faith? What happened to their faith? Well, there was no real faith to begin with. They followed Jesus because they were convinced that there was a benefit from it. If he's the king, then I'm going to have a position. Things are going to work out well. You know, I'll invest some time in it now, but you know what? There's going to be a reward at the end. The calculation is easy to work out. I follow Jesus now. He becomes a king. Then I'm going to get the reward at the end. There's an investment that takes place. Because God's going to owe me something. You know, if when I followed him, if I follow him before he becomes king, then he's going to have to reward me somehow. But let me ask you a question. Isn't that what many people do? in life as long as there's a perceived benefit you know i'll invest some time in it as long as it benefits me if i see the investment gonna come through then i'll continue with it but if it doesn't come through if i see it's wavering you know what i'll go and invest in something else are you doing that this morning is jesus an investment for you Because that's what religion teaches. Invest, and there'll be something that comes at the end of it. Christianity does not teach that. Christianity tells us to put our faith, our hope, our belief in Him because of who He is, because it's right, regardless of the perceived benefit you're going to have in this life. You know, Israel did the same thing when they entered the promised land. We've been looking at judges in, uh, on Wednesday evenings as a study. And they said, they've come into the promised land. God said to them, I want you to conquer this. I want you to conquer that. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to, we're going to clear out all, the, all these nasty people that were doing really, really bad stuff. I don't want you mixing with them because they've got some pretty bad uh, gods they follow. Um, and I want you to be faithful to me. Instead, what they did is they held on to their belief in God while it benefited them. When someone came along with a better offer, when they stopped obeying God, because it was a bit too hard to do, you see, there was a bit too much sacrifice that had to take place. You know what I mean? God, all right, God saved us from Egypt. All right, he got us through 40 years in the middle of a desert. You know, he kept us going for that long. And yeah, he got us into the promised land. He, he defeated all these different nations before us. All right, we're in here. All right, we got our benefit. Now what? He's asking us for more. There's, there's other people over here and we didn't get rid of them. We didn't, we didn't move them on because we felt sorry for them. Even though God says, you know, that we were supposed to drive them out. Um, you know what? They're not that bad, those people. And look, they worship these gods that give them all these crops. They give them fertility. They have big families. You know what? That, that sounds like a pretty good deal for me. You know what? God, you, you've got us this far. That's, thank you very much for that. You've, you've given us the reward. Thank you very much. You've been fantastic. But you know what? These guys are making us a better offer now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, to go this way for a while. And what we see happening in the book of Judges is the people abandon God. They begin to worship Baal and, and Asherah or Ashtaroth. And they begin to do the abominable things that those people have, because there's a perceived benefit from it. They'd got their benefit from God, and now they wanted some other benefits. So it had nothing to do with real faith and real belief or the truth. It had to do with what's in it for me. And unfortunately, the majority of people in this world, that's it. That's what, they, that's what they, uh, they do. That's exactly the way they think. Whether they follow a religion, 
whether they believe in, uh, in, in God or whatever else it is, whatever they do, the question mark is, what's in it for me? People do this all the time. God is somehow a genie in a magic lantern. You know what? I'll get my three wishes. I've got my first wish. I've got my second wish. I've got my third wish. Unbelievable. That's really good. But you know what? That lantern doesn't work anymore. Let's put it to the side. Time for a dip, something else. God's like a lucky dip. A lucky star to, to make a wish upon. He's a carnival game to try out. And who knows, I might win with this one over here. And if I, while I'm winning, I keep shooting. That's not faith. And people play these games of God all the time. God is not stupid. People think they take God for a ride, that, that somehow he's a fool. That, that, that people can use him when they want him, and then when they, when they don't need him, they go to some, some other direction. God is not a fool. He's not just there to meet our needs. He's not just there at our beck and call to, to, to come and answer when we need him. Not at all. He is the infinite God of the universe, the judge of the entire universe. The majority of people don't worship a real God. They worship a God who is a figment of their imagination. A God who they have created in their own image. One that fits and suits them. Someone might ask, hang on a sec, are you teaching that a person can lose their faith? If these disciples were walking with Jesus and, and then stopped? No, no, not at all. The Bible doesn't say you lose faith when it's genuine faith. <clears throat> but look at, what Je- look at what Jesus says about those who did leave. John chapter 6, verse 64. He says, But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. He knew from the very beginning everyone that followed him, why they were following him. He already knew who was real and who wasn't. He already knew the ones who would abandon him because they had no real belief, because they were in it for their benefit. And he even knew the one who would betray him, who was part of that group, who was Judas. So in the midst of that betrayal, in the midst of all those disciples leaving him because they couldn't take the... They weren't in it for this particular ride. They were in it for something else. He turns to his 12 and he says to them, he says to the 12 in verse 67 of John 6, he says, will you also go away? Do you also want to go? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. True faith. You know what, Lord? It doesn't matter. Who else are we going to go to? You're the Son of God. You've got the truth. If it means our death, so be it. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The circumstances that we have around us don't really cha- doesn't change anything. True faith recognizes the truth and it sticks with it. Even though others may leave, even though suffering may come, even though ridicule may come, the truth is always the truth. And those people who are of the truth will stick to the truth and value it. So in a lot of these changes to their faith, Jesus asked Peter, James and John, I want you to come up on the mountain with me. Did he tell them why? Yeah, he does. Matthew doesn't record it. But he says to, it says in Luke, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9 for a moment. He invites them up to a mountain to pray. He invites them up to a mountain to pray. And mind you, this is what they got swirling in their mind. It says in Luke 9.28, And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, 
Then he took Peter, so he took Peter and John and James. He went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment, which means his clothes, was white and glistening. Luke records. What did he invite them to do? To pray. You know, prayer is that pathway. Prayer is that path to that mountain and up on that mountain. And if you want Jesus to reveal himself to you, then pray. And there's a time and a place for it. It's a place that's separate from the world. In this picture of, of this mountain, of being on top of a mountain, is a metaphor for something. And if it's a metaphor for anything, it's a metaphor of heaven. It's a, it's a, a place apart, high, from everywhere else and everyone else in the world. You know, when you come before the Lord, you're coming before the, the King of heaven, who lives in heaven. And there's a time and a place for it. And it requires effort. You know, walking up a mountain is not an easy thing to do. I'm not exactly um, uh, the fittest person in the world. And it's a struggle to get up to the top of a mountain. I'd probably struggle to get to the top of a mountain. And it would have been similar for the apostles. To walk up a hill is a, is a, a challenge. And I know that prayer sometimes is a challenge for many of us. You know, when, you're, when you go to bed at night and you, you, you're praying, trying to pray before you get to sleep, you're so tired sometimes. And I know that many of us have fallen asleep while we're even praying. Prayer is effort. But prayer, but prayer think of what prayer is. It's actually you in heaven before the glorified one, before the one who shines like the sun. And I want you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice two important things, that it wasn't the disciples' prayer. It wasn't while they were praying that Jesus was transfigured. It was when he was praying. I want you, I want you to notice that it was while, while Jesus was praying that he was actually transfigured before them. In fact, they had already fallen asleep. Look at Luke Chapter 9, verse 32. It says there, now mind you, they've gone to the top of the mountain. They've gone through all this way. And it says in verse 32, Luke chapter 9, But Peter and they that were with him, there's James and John, were heavy with sleep. They were knocked out. They were gone. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. They saw the glory of Jesus and the two men, Elijah and Moses, with him. So Jesus took them up to a mountain to pray. And did they immediately fall asleep? Well, of course not. They, they didn't immediately fall asleep. In fact, there's probably good evidence that they actually were praying for quite a while, maybe even a full day they may have prayed. They may have prayed for a, for a considerable amount of time, although when you go up a mountain or a very tall hill, you're probably going to be tired by the time you get there. But he invited them up there to pray. And you'll notice something interesting. In Luke, it says that it came to pass after, uh, it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. So while Matthew says after six days, he took them up. What's going on? Hang on a sec. Uh, Luke's saying after, after about eight days. He went up, they prayed, and, and Jesus was altered. And then, uh, and then uh, Matthew says after six days he went up. Well, yeah, both are correct, obviously. Matthew records they departed after six days, but Luke focuses on the actual transfiguration and the prayer. Luke mentions the prayer. So they probably had been praying for quite a while. Between six days and around eight days? There's your time difference. By the time they went up the mountain, by the time they prayed, um, they were probably exhausted. But it says that he was transfigured before them um, while he was praying. You know what? It isn't 
in our weakened effort of prayer that Jesus reveals himself as the Son of God, it's when he prays. When does Jesus pray? Well, the Bible says that even now he intercedes for us to the Father. Even though he's sitting on the throne, when you come before the Father, guess who you're praying through? You're praying through him. When you come to God the Father in Jesus' name, he's making requests to the Father for you. And the Bible says that he is our high priest. He's the one who stands and sits between us and God. When you pray and you're a child of God, the Bible says that he turns to his Father and requests those things. He prays on our behalf. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7 with me for a moment. Here we're going. Okay, we're almost done. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Wherefore he is able to, able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's Jesus, our high priest, the one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He is higher than the heavens, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Intercession intercession means to come in between and to and to advocate on behalf of. He is our our guy up there in heaven. He is our saviour in heaven, interceding always for us. So have you come to put your faith in Jesus this morning? If you have, my, my question to you is, why? Is it as Peter declared, he is the son of the living God to you? That he is the only one who has the truth, regardless of the consequences of that this might hold for you? Or is he someone that you go to when you just have need of him? Have you understood that to be a disciple, that there's a cross that needs to be carried? That Jesus didn't promise a lifetime of luxury, a lifetime of, of, of no problems, but he promised a lifetime of suffering on his behalf. Have you denied yourself and understood that Jesus needs to come first? Is it the type of faith that you have? Salvation comes not by trusting in yourself or by thinking that you or I are number one in this world, but having Jesus as number one. If he is truly your saviour, if he is truly your Lord, which means your master, then do you behave that way? Is he the one you long to go to in prayer? Is he the one you appreciate being your intercessor? Is prayer for you just a wish list? That you come before God and you say, all right, God, I've got my laundry list this morning. Let's see which, um, which things I have to ask you this morning. And please make sure you hurry up and send those requests through. Is that what God is to you this morning? Or is your love for Jesus so strong that regardless of what your circumstances are, your love for him is so strong because you have recognized who he is and what he's done for you? Do you truly love Jesus this morning? Do you truly love him? As our brother Alan has shared, are you filled with him? Is he the one you fill your life with? Or is your life so filled with everything else that you put a small part aside for him? Colossians 3.1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, if you have been made, made alive through Jesus Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. What are those things above? 
It's where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. It's him. Is Christ your saviour this morning? In the coming weeks, we're going to find out what Jesus did when he peeled away his humanity and showed us his divinity. My prayer this morning is that you have come to recognise you've actually met the risen Jesus. And that if you are his child this morning, that you long to be with him, to be seated in front of him. Like Mary and Martha, Mary desired the right thing. Martha was busy about her stuff, but Mary just, Mary just wanted to be with Jesus, to listen to him. So this morning, is Jesus, does Jesus have the rightful place in your life? Do you understand that following Jesus requires suffering? I'm not talking about the suffering that everyone else suffers, because everyone suffers. Whether it's sickness, whether it's death, whether it's things that go wrong, I'm not talking about that suffering, because everyone suffers that. I'm talking about the suffering that comes from letting other people know that you follow Jesus and that you've put your faith and your trust in him. I pray that you all have a, a lovely week. But I pray more so that Jesus comes first in your life. God bless you.